Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 41 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And this is going to be a really packed episode for you guys today. We've got some really spicy topics on the menu today. We're going to be talking about rapist trannies, which is something they told us was never, ever going to happen. We're going to talk about the latest high-profile victim of cancel culture, which absolutely is still a thing. And it is still targeting certain people in single, in large-scale, coordinated campaigns against particular individuals. That is something that kind of was appeared to be on the decline or wasn't being covered in the mainstream media too often. It was now more kind of like broader waves. But now we are seeing the full theory of cancel culture coming for one person in particular. We will talk about that. But before we do that, we just have to, I have to share this. I have to talk about this. I saw this. I, I posted this on Gab. So you can follow, follow me on Gab at Eric Lendrum and see my post and my thoughts about that one. But I saw this article. I saw the courtesy of, of the MSN news aggregate. And I knew right away this was going to be one of the absolute stupidest things I have ever read in my entire life. And I was correct. It's an article <clears throat> from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It is written by a fellow named Steve Chapman. I don't know who that is. I have never heard of him before. The headline alone speaks for itself and really all i'm going to do all i need to do is just read excerpts from this article because it speaks for itself the headline is quote what's so bad about coastal elites and he puts coastal elites in quotes now he starts off the article admittedly talking about how oh bashing the elites is nothing new like that's something conservatives and republicans conservatives and republicans and liberals and democrats do donald trump bernie sanders have all bashed the elites it's totally a commonplace thing in populist politics and politics in general so the first maybe third of the article is him kind of deflecting and saying, oh, this is not, you know, me criticizing, criticizing the criticism of elites. I'm not puzzled by the attacks on elites, he says about the about halfway through the article. He gets to the part where this is just hilarious. Quote, I'm not puzzled by the attacks on elites. It's the coastal part that mystifies me. Because a lot of people say coastal elites. That's a phrase that's kind of been on the rise since 2016. And again, Bernie Sanders, Tim Ryan, and others, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, have used that phrase to refer to the coastal elites. Obviously, you have you know the deepest blue bastions of the country are California and New York, both on the coast. You have Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, these big cities, You know, certainly in the Northeast, you have Boston, other big cities that are heavily blue, and they're coastal. And vast majority, especially when it comes to certain industries like entertainment, Hollywood, big tech, they are overwhelmingly from California. So naturally what you have here, again, for the idea of coastal elitism, they all inhabit the same general area and they all, as such, they inhabit a bubble, both a physical, geo geographical, and ideological bubble. But this guy takes away from this that the use of the word coastal is problematic. Quote, it's the coastal part that mystifies me. For one thing, it often betrays a clanking lack of self-awareness. Clanking, what, like people who are made of robots or something? Ted Cruz lives in Houston, which is a half-hour drive from the Gulf of Mexico, making it, yes, a coastal city. The Georgia GOP didn't mention that the state has 100 miles abutting the Atlantic Ocean. Come to think of it, many of the states that voted for Donald Trump in 2020 also have endless supplies of salt air. South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Texas are all coastal states. One of the reddest states of all, Alaska, has nearly 34,000 miles of coastline, which is more than all the lower 48 states combined. End quote. That, that's part of it. Just see where he's going with this? He's unironically doubling down on the idea that when people use the phrase coastal elites, 
they are talking about just the geographical coast itself. You cannot make this up. It gets worse. It's true that several blue states possess oceanfront property, notably California and New York, but there is no obvious reason to think that their liberal orientation is the fault of the coastline. Being on the ocean by itself doesn't seem to have any predictable effect on voting patterns, end quote. No kidding. No, no one is saying this, Steve Chapman. No one is arguing that scientific studies show that living by a beach makes you more likely to vote blue. Nobody is saying that. I can't believe he's actually right. These are all actual words that this individual, this grown adult <laughs> man typed and said, yes, this is the way to go. Quote, those who attack coastal, he puts coastal in quotes, those who attack coastal elites seem to forget that there are plenty of liberals in flyover country. Chicago is a long way from the ocean, but that didn't stop Mr. Trump from regularly lambasting its mayor. Minnesota hasn't voted for a Republican for president since 1972. Colorado, Nevada, and New Mexico, all landlocked, all have Democratic governors and Democratic-controlled legislatures, end quote. I can't believe I'm reading this. The dude is seriously like, <laughs> actually, there are blue states that don't border any coasts. Checkmate, bigots. Like, is this guy actually serious? There's more. Or maybe, quote, or maybe they just think the elite charge sounds more damning with a modifier attached, even if it doesn't make much sense. But seriously, if being an elite is despicable, is the coastal variety really worse than the intermountain version or the Great Lakes type? End quote. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All those dirty elites up in, in Montana, the, those elites living in the Rocky Mountains, those elites living on the Great Lakes, on the shores of Lake Superior. Yeah, th those are the elites we really got to worry about. Th those are elites who are problematic or would be if it weren't for the fact that they literally don't exist. So I'm not sure what this guy's getting at. And again, I got to read just one more excerpt. This is what he ends the article with. This is, I'm, I, like I said, I would mostly just be reading excerpts from this because they speak for themselves. The end of the article reads as follows, quote, One of our beloved patriotic hymns says, God has shed his grace on us, quote, from sea to shining sea. If you've got a problem with coastal places and people, You've got a problem with America. Oh, my God. Jacob, help he, me out here. He doesn't I, – I think he knows exactly what people mean when they say coastal elites. He's just being facetious. He's just trying to make fun of the idea, try to pretend like it doesn't exist because it's an effective counterattack against the oh, yeah. actual coastal elites who have a lot more money, a lot more privilege, a lot more political power than the vast majority of Americans. I mean they are literally the 1% exactly. that Occupy Wall Street was talking about 10 years ago. But this guy is talking about a coastal elite. So you mean like uh, the, the Pascagoula, Mississippi elites? You mean the Biloxi <laughs> elites? Those, those elites down living in the ghettos of New Orleans? Is that they, they live on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. The 1% in Pensacola, Florida, obviously. Right, right. No, right. but I'm just like, this guy, uh, I would, all, if he was actually trolling us, if he was writing this deliberately to troll people and be like, you know, there's no way someone can be this dumb. I might respect that, but no, he clearly, you can tell he is angry when he writes this. These are the furious scribblings of an angry man who doesn't understand the coastal elite thing. And first off, like I said earlier, the coastal elite, obviously they live in both a geographical and ideological bubble. The idea with coastal elites is it technically started with them. They're the ones who first used this pejorative geographical language. They were the ones who came up with the whole idea of flyover country. You know, that phrase you hear all the time. Oh, the states that nobody lives in unless they, no, nobody goes to a state like Kansas, unless they're stopped for a layover or something. People people don't actually live in, in a state like Oklahoma, do they? You know, they can't comprehend the idea of farms, 
of rural America, of working class, middle class Americans. They think that these are in San Francisco or New York. They think the entire country is just like their little niche, their little area that they occupy that happens to be on the coast. And that's part of it. Certainly, you know, coastal areas are more affluent. You know, look at Obama. Obama, after his presidency, moved to Martha's Vineyard, one of the most upscale, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in America, if not the entire world, which is on the coast. That is a part of it. But the fact is that I, I, the best way to summarize this article clearly is, quote, I, I would say this, quote, what's so bad about coastal elites, says a coastal elite. Like this guy clearly, I don't know this guy's background. I don't know what his deal is, but it's quite obvious he's triggered by this because why else would he write this ridiculous little screed about this whole thing? He clearly is just doesn't understand why people dislike him so much. And this reflects the arrogance of the bubble that they live in. They cannot comprehend the idea that the rest of the country isn't like Brooklyn, that the entire country isn't like San Francisco. They can't handle the idea that the rest of the country is not like Beverly Hills. And when they're confronted with this, they just chalk it up to, oh, that they're just racist or, in this case, the simplest thing imaginable. Oh, those darn Trumpers must really not like the beach. I just, I, and I, I like beaches. I, I, I like the ocean. I hope to live on the ocean one day. But I understand that it's more than just the geography, you idiot Steve Chapman. It's a mindset. It has nothing to do with being on the coast physically. It is a mindset that is bred by being in these areas that are elitist, that are upscale, upper class, that happen to be on the coast. And often what you see is, and we talked about this way back in our episode where we talked about uh, J.D. Vance's Senate candidacy. What they do, especially with these colleges on the coast, is they see an influx of students from middle America, flyover country as you call it, and they leave their hometown, their, their small little rural towns, whatever, and they go to a big, rich, fancy college. And the professors and their fellow students who are more familiar with this area or at least aren't from those, you know, hillbilly areas, they, they take these kids under the wings and say, oh, you poor thing coming from redneck country. You, you deserve better than that. You belong here on the coast with us. You belong in this elite. And when the small handful of people like J.D. Vance or like uh, Blake Masters, another candidate for Senate running in Arizona, or these people who are supposed to be members of the elite, Donald Trump, for example— who are members of the elite for the longest time, decide to turn their back on the elite and not only turn their back on the elite, but use what they learn from the elite against them, that's when they go absolutely nuts and they cannot stand it. But the longer that elitists like this Steve Chapman fellow continue to live in complete ignorance and arrogance, I'm all for it because that just means they're going to get blindsided even harder in the future. Well, one perfect example of how the coastal elites put the put their thumbs on the scale in favor of their class. You know, remember how Trump moved the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management out west? Yep. Last uh, year because he wanted to make sure they just you know wanted to spread kind of spread the federal wealth around just a little bit. Well, last month the Biden well in September the Biden administration moved it right back to DC. And this was of course praised by the employees because the employees want to live in DC. They don't want to live out in Colorado. And it's funny because I was reading the, the Reddit thread on this decision and all the Redditors, they were all gleeful about the fact that this is going to be able to attract the best and brightest people to work for BLM because they they don't want to live out in the middle. They don't want to live in Colorado. They don't want to live in flyover country. They want to live in trendy coastal cities. And so if you want to attract the best and brightest, you got to put your headquarters in trendy coastal cities. So this is the, you know, these all these people are making six-figure salaries. That's why this area is so rich because you've got all these federal employees with their spending power who are pumping money into the economy and it's boosting the Northern Virginia, Maryland suburbs of DC to be six of the 10 richest counties in the country. 
rather than they don't want the federal government to spread out across the states and spread that wealth around. You know, they, talk, they talk about spreading the wealth around. They're not actually interested in spreading any of the wealth around. They just want to keep it all bottled up in New York City, D.C., Boston, San Francisco. Absolutely unreal. Again, the absolute audacity that these people have that they really think it's a good idea. Yeah, let's just keep all these rich bureaucrat types and yuppies and policy wonks all in the same tiny little diamond-shaped area that is Washington, D.C. and the surrounding suburbs of Maryland and North Virginia, as you said. They really don't understand why people hate them so much. And again, like Steve Chapman and others, they chalk it up to the stupidest, simplest things imaginable. They must all be racist. They must hate women. They must not like going to the beach. Because when you reduce it to the simplest explanation, then it makes it in your mind, in their mind, it's easier to attack them. And it's easier to to just dismiss them, to dismiss their concerns. Oh, clearly we, why should I take the opinion of someone who doesn't like going to a nice beach in Miami? Like, I can't comprehend the idea. It just, it blows my mind. But again, I welcome their arrogance because the more comfortable they get in their bubble, the more glorious it is when that bubble is shattered. Like, for example, when it was in 2016. So on our next topic, we're going to return to what has been a common theme on the right take, and that is something that's been going on in our area here in Northern Virginia, and that is the fight over school boards, the fight over what children are going to be taught in schools, whether they're going to be taught to love America or hate America, whether they're going to be taught to get along with each other and see each other as fellow Americans or to see each other as oppressors and oppressed, to see each other as gays and straights, as white and black. And this is one of the things that... And if you remember back in June, there was a school board meeting in Loudoun County. There's been dozens of school board meetings that have gotten raucous. But at this particular school board meeting, there was a man who was arrested. He was beaten down by the police, arrested and dragged out. And this made national news because for over a month, the school board meetings in Fairfax County and Loudoun County had been getting out of hand as more and more parents began to voice their opposition to all the racial and the anti-white racial bigotry that's being foisted on their students. And the fact the the image of this guy being arrested and dragged out of the school, that was what the left saw as, okay, this is our opportunity to finally discredit this movement, this anti-critical race theory movement to show that they're just a bunch of rabid right wingers similar to the people who stormed the Capitol. So they ran with this narrative. They showed this kind of heavy set man being dragged out by the police. His name was uh, I remember this guy, actually. This was the anti-critical race theory protest, you said. It was that what was whenever they were debating putting in the transgender bathrooms because the governor made it so that all schools have to implement the policy of making teachers address transgender students by their preferred pronouns. Right. And forcing schools to let boys go into girls bathroom if they bathrooms if they see themselves as girls and vice versa. So there was that incident earlier this year. You said I think it was in June where a parent, a father by the name of John Tiggs, I believe was his name. I think he was actually a veteran, either a veteran or a police officer. I don't remember which. Um, But yeah, he was arrested like they protested the school board meeting on critical race theory, I believe. And the school board called the cops and said, hey, arrest these people. We don't want these people here anymore. Because again, apparently speaking your mind on certain politics is illegal in America now. And they arrested this one guy named John Tiggs. And now we have a more another example of a parent being arrested, another father. And this is a story that it's even beyond. It's even worse. Again, in the previous case, he was simply arrested for protesting critical race theory. In this case, the man was arrested for well, multiple things. He was protesting the transgender policy, as Jacob just said, but because the transgender policy of, oh, just let students of use whichever bathrooms they prefer had very devastating consequences for his family. In particular. So this particular incident was used by the left to get the sick, the Justice Department on these parents. And this is what prompted Merrick Garland to issue his memo to the Justice Department. 
and order them to work with the FBI to track down these parents and investigate these these violent right-wing extremists that are threatening school board members, threatening the schools. And he specifically, Merrick, Merrick Garland specifically cited this incident, cited several news sources that carried the story you know, on June 22nd when this father was arrested and dragged out of the Loudoun County School Board meeting. And you know, initially it just looked like, okay, well, this is just a guy who got a little heated, got a little out of hand. Well, he was he was sentenced to 10 days in prison. The judge, uh, or not in prison, 10 days in jail because it was a misdemeanor for obstruction of justice. All he did, by the way, is whenever the police tried to grab him, all he did was pull his arm back. And because of that, the police officer punched him in the face, bloodied his lip, and then they arrested him. And yet they charged him with obstruction of justice. This was this sentence was handed down after the judge already knew what we're going to talk about today. So the reason why this guy, Scott Smith, got so agitated at the school board meeting is because this transgender bathroom policy that they were debating, because the governor, again, the governor had signed a law. This is whenever, shortly after the Democrats took over the legislature in Virginia, they passed this law mandating that every single school allow people to use the bathroom, students to use the bathroom of their choice. And the the school board was simply debating whether or not to pass this law that they had, they were forced by the state school board to pass. Well, get a load of this. We're learning new details tonight in two alleged sexual assaults inside two different Loudoun County schools. Some parents are calling for the superintendent's job. That's because a teenage boy charged with the first assault was allowed to transfer to another school where he was later charged in the second. Northern Virginia Bureau reporter Drew Wilder walks us through what happened. The first attack was reported inside Stonebridge High School in late May, where a ninth grade girl says a boy forcibly sodomized her inside of a school bathroom. Alicia Brand is talking with News 4 on behalf of the victim's family. And this is a really, really difficult time for them. I mean, their, their baby was sexually assaulted in the most heinous of ways. While the Loudoun County Sheriff's Office was investigating, a Loudoun County School Board meeting devolved into chaos on June 22nd, where the victim's mother is heard on cell phone video telling the crowd what happened. Behind her, the victim's father is being arrested for disorderly conduct and obstruction of justice. The family says they were provoked by other parents. Now fast forward to October 6th, inside Broad Run High School. Another girl reports being sexually assaulted. Prosecutors confirm it was the same boy. And notice what the news reports said, by the way, right there, which I hope that uh, anchor doesn't get canceled for this. He said boy because the individual, the student in this case, is a boy who identifies as transgender. Yes, exactly. This boy had a skirt on when he went in that bathroom and raped this girl. So he went into the bathroom thinking he was a girl. He goes into the bathroom and sees this girl and decides, you know what? I want to be a boy again. He does his does what he wants to do with her in the bathroom. And he walks out and decides, OK, I'm going to I'm going to be a girl again and walks around with his skirt on. Because that's how, that's how it works. This, Those are the this, rules now. Yeah, this is what you introduce whenever you allow students to use the bathroom of their choice. They walk in, a boy puts on a skirt, decides he wants to be a girl, goes in the bathroom, decides he wants to be a boy, comes out, decides he wants to be a girl for the rest of the day. And remember, this is what many on the right said would happen with transgender bathroom policies that you would have. I mean, the worst case scenario was imagining like adult like pedophiles, like adult offenders who would target little kids. This in many ways is just as bad. This is a another minor, another teenager who is sexually assaulting fellow minors. And they said it wouldn't happen. The left said, oh, no, no, this, this that's not going to happen. You're crazy. You're transphobic. There, there's not going to be any rapes. Rapes still happen in high school. Funny how they suddenly change their tunes on that. You know, they go from me too to, oh, no, suddenly the rapes don't happen like this. That That's, that's impossible. But the news report goes on. 
Oh, some parents are calling for the superintendent's job. The night of the chaotic school board meeting, the board was discussing the transgender and gender fluid student rights policy, which allows students to use the restroom of their gender identity. And a school board member asked the superintendent. Do we have assaults in our bathrooms or our locker rooms regularly? I would hope not, but I would like clarification. To my knowledge, we don't have any records of assaults occurring in our restroom. The superintendent told that to the board less than a month after the first attack. His false statement on June 22nd and his failure to keep an alleged assailant out of school are far worse and merit immediate termination. Virginia State Code requires the superintendent be made aware of sexual assaults in schools. In a statement, Loudoun County Public Schools says a public announcement at that time had the potential to identify a juvenile victim. Parents say because the appropriate action wasn't taken, there are now two juvenile victims. So they argue that if we had, if the superintendent, Scott Ziegler, had said, yes, there, we actually have had a sexual assault happen by a gender fluid student in, a, in an, a, the girl's bathroom less than a month ago. If he had said that, then their argument is, well, that could potentially identify the victim. But the victim's father was there in the room when he said that, when he told that lie. In fact, it was that lie that partially prompted him to get up and make a scene. And the only reason why he made a scene is because he had, as we're going to listen, as we're going to hear in the next video, he had sat there and listened to speaker after speaker give the pro transgender, pro gender fluid side of the story. And he got up and tried to explain what happened. And this woman shouted him down and said, no, you're lying. That didn't happen. You're making that stuff up. And you can imagine as a father whose daughter had just been raped a month before, if I had to have someone, you know, some some a woman wearing a rainbow flag. Purple haired, you feminist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, assuming she was who, female. Who probably, <laughs> and probably does not have kids of her own. Yeah. Assuming she she was actually female. But to hear to hear her say something like that, I mean, you can understand why he would get angry and mad and rowdy. And so then, yeah, of course, he's going to get agitated about that. But uh, then for Ziegler to then argue that, well, I couldn't say that this happened because it could potentially identify the victim. Well, the victim's father is there. Like the, everyone in the community knows who the family was. We know that's not the reason why he lied. He knows he didn't he didn't deny lying. He didn't say, well, I didn't know about this. He obviously knew about it. I mean, according to the Virginia Code, he had to have known about it. It's, it's law that he has to find out about this. No, instead, he's arguing that I didn't want to identify the victim. But the real reason is because he didn't want to make the case against transgender bathrooms. He didn't want to make the case against the law that the Virginia legislature passed. Because can you imagine if he said, oh, yeah, we just had a gender fluid student rape a, a, a sophomore, a rape a, a freshman. I believe, I believe she was a freshman. Just a, few, just a few weeks ago. You can imagine how that would make the case for the side that he's against. It wasn't until after the second victim came forward and became known to the public, the dad actually came forward again because nobody's really heard much about him since his sentencing. He's now become an example of the left of why the government needs to crack down on these right-wing parents. Well, he finally decided to speak out again whenever uh, the second victim became known, and he sat down for an interview with the local ABC station. And we're going to be playing this on 1.5 speed because it is a lengthy segment. The initial assault, we were notified on the phone that our daughter had been beat up in the girls' bathroom by a male. Nothing about sexual assault. Uh, when we arrived at the school, my wife arrived first. They sequestered her into a little office with a guidance counselor. My wife has reported that the, my wife, my daughter, and the guidance counselor were not allowed to talk about what had happened. They just sat there in silence. And my wife and daughter had to communicate with hand signals and stuff just to figure out what was going on. 
they wouldn't let me through the front door of the school because I didn't have my ID with me at the time. Um, I think that they obviously knew who I was through the little camera. I think that they should have let me in the door and not had a standoff with me at the front door with an SRO officer. The whole thing was handled poorly. Did they reveal to you that it was a sexual assault and did they say they would handle it internally and no, not contact the police? Nobody would reveal that it was a sexual assault that day. No. Did, they, did the district ever suggest they wanted to handle it internally and not contact the police? As far as you know? Say that one more time. Did anybody from the school suggest to you, let's handle this internally in the school and not contact the police? It wasn't suggested verbally. It was suggested by their actions. Um, can you imagine showing up to a school and finding out that your daughter has just been sodomized and wondering why there isn't an ambulance at the school and sheriff's officers? And the funny thing is, is I thought the sheriff was there at first, right? Because the SRO says sheriff on the front. But it became apparently obvious to me within minutes that he was reporting to the principal, first and foremost. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but that's what was appeared to me. And basically when I realized that that sheriff wasn't going to help me, you know, I made such a scene that the principal chose to direct someone in the office to call 911 on me because the parent was out of control. The sheriff's department showed up like a SWAT team and escorted me, my wife, and my daughter off the property. That was about last we heard from them. So a parent wants to report that his daughter has been raped the day it happened, and they call the police on the parent. They call the police on the parent, and they escort the parent... And the victim. Both parents, Both parents and, and the, the rape victim. victim off school. They ex Think about that. Because feminism, right, this, guys? Yeah, right. This this girl, this little girl has been raped in school. Little they, freshman in high school, probably about like 14 years old, give or take. They don't let her and her mother speak to each other. Did you catch that? They had her and her mother sit in there with the guidance counselor, and they weren't allowed to talk to each other. They had to hand... I mean, yeah, you can use your imagination. This girl, this poor little girl's got to try to use hand signals to explain to her mother what this monster did to her in this bathroom. And then the dad isn't even allowed to come in and be with his daughter, who has just been raped. They don't even tell the dad that his daughter's been raped. He has to find out from her. And then to make, and then just to add insult to injury, they then call the police on the family and they escort the rape victim off campus. With, and again, as he said, no ambulance on site. She presumably has not gotten any medical attention at this point. No. And he, he goes on to say that they couldn't get therapy for her. They couldn't, they couldn't, they had trouble finding anything. And then he shows up to let his voice be heard at the school board meeting. He gets punched in the face for it by a police officer and arrested and charged and sentenced to 10 days in, uh, in jail, a suspended sentence. And then these school board members sit on their high horses and they wonder why parents hate them so much when they will go out of their way to accommodate a rapist and send the rape victim home, escort them off campus by a SWAT team without any medical attention, and all in the name of transgender rights? You've got to be kidding me. How many of these school board members don't have kids of their own? But or you can, don't have, even have kids in the district. Exactly, yeah. Well, you, here's, here's the society that they're setting up. Parents know that boys can use the girls' bathroom, but they can't do anything about it. So their daughter gets raped. They try to complain. They get the police called on them. They get threatened that if they say something about it, they could go to jail. They could have their business ruined. By the way, this guy ended up losing business because all these leftists, these these uh, wine sipping Antifa parents, they of course attacked his business for being uh, you know anti-trans, being a, being a bigot at the school board meeting. So your daughter's been raped. You can't speak out because if you do, you'll lose income, you'll lose your job, you'll lose your business. You may get your house bombed. 
Oh, and also you'll get arrested if you say anything about it. You'll get arrested, and even if you don't get violent, the school board meeting. Now that the FBI is on the case, then the FBI could come to your door. You could be carted away to Guantanamo or whatever without a trial. And I mean, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. Like if they we took, talked about this in a recent episode, if they took this to its logical conclusion, if they treated these parents as domestic terrorists, they could arrest these parents without a trial, ship them off, and treat them worse than the January 6 protesters. This is a reality. If the DOJ and the FBI went through with their current plans of investigating these parents as domestic terrorists. So we saw it start during the Trump administration when they went after like Roger Stone. They had a SWAT team raid his house at six in the morning and all the others, Carter Page, and then up through the January 6th protesters. And now this. It's not an exaggeration. And on top of that, on top of that, the Stone, uh, the Stone raid was covered by CNN. So CNN was tipped off that it was going to happen. So you can have a family, uh, you know, these parents whose daughter has been raped. And now you've got the the news cameras there at their house watching as the FBI raids their house and, dra- you know, drags them out in handcuffs and everything. And the woman's yelling, they, you know, they raped my daughter at school. And everyone's just like, yeah, this is what crazy right wingers think. Because you can imagine at the school board meeting, here, this woman is saying my daughter was raped in this school and nobody believes her. Nobody cares. The school board, the you know, superintendent sitting there, the school board members are sitting there. It's like, OK, OK, that that's nice. Yeah, OK, whatever. We got it. We have to protect trans students. We, we must protect trans students. And this is why. Whenever you see things like Ted Cruz wishing AOC a happy birthday on Twitter, saying things like, and I'll pull up the exact quote. This is recently. She turned 32 years old. So Ted Cruz wanted to go out of his way to wish AOC a happy birthday, who, by the way, AOC supports this transgender stuff 100 percent. Why does he keep trying to reach across the aisle? Metaphor so, so this, is, this is what Cancun Cruz decided to tweet. Although we disagree on many issues, we are both blessed to live in the land of the free and home of the brave. Happy birthday to AOC. And this is the mentality of so many people on the right. As we live in the greatest country on earth, this is the greatest country in the world. We have freedom in America. No. When stuff like this happens in this country, this is not the greatest nation on earth. We do not have freedom in America. As long as stuff like this happens, where ha- technically correction, half the population has freedom for being on the correct political side. The other half has no freedom. I mean, people who were supported the Soviet regime, they had plenty of freedom. Oh yeah, their their lives weren't impeded at all. They weren't surveilled. They didn't, you know, as long as they pledged allegiance to the regime, they were behind the regime one hundred percent. They didn't complain. They turned a blind eye to atrocities. And this is one of the key things. Here's here is a key tenet of any dictatorship. An authoritarian regime, an oppressive regime, you can always recognize it by the fact that common everyday people turn a blind eye to oppression and injustice. Mm-hmm. They see something happen. They see the government do something to people. And rather than investigate, rather than look into it, they just uh, look away. OK, check out the new Do- iPhone. Doesn't you know? affect me. Well, what's, who's, who's playing today? You know what? They, they just, yeah, it doesn't affect them. So they don't pay any attention to it. How, how's the new that new series on Netflix? Uh, Squid Game. I'm going to watch that. Yes. But like, no, it's again, I would argue it's more of society. It's less. Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously, government institutional pressures. I work here, but it's also societal pressure. It's also because corporations support all this is at the altar of diversity whether it's black lives matter or the trannies or what have you they support diversity diversity equity and inclusion or realistically it should be diversity inclusion and equity because then the acronym is die which i think is more appropriate but again if you simply pledge allegiance to black lives matter or anarcho-communism like antifa you can burn down half the country and not only get away with it if you somehow manage to get arrested because you're that stupid, you will be bailed out by the future vice president of the United mm-hmm. States who will support your, your bail, GoFundMe bail fund. You can do any of these things. You can murder police officers. You can murder civilians, business owners trying to defend their businesses like Captain David Dorn. You can do these things with impunity. You can just the other day 
at the Department of Interior. We how, how long have we been hearing about the insurrection of January 6th? Because boomers, you know, took a few selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office. Just the other day at the Department of Interior, a bunch of anti-pipeline lunatics stormed the offices of the Department of Interior in Washington, D.C. and staged a sit-in protest. And they shoved through the police officer who was guarding the door and they stay and they just barge right in. This is a federal building, the headquarters of one of the largest departments in the federal government. And none of them were arrested. None of them got shot like Ashley Babbitt was shot. They can do whatever they want. But if you happen to have a MAGA hat on, then you're going to immediately get shot. But what's interesting about this is not only was did the school board deny this happened, did Scott Ziegler deny this happened, but they quietly moved the student to another school. So the student assaulted, raped this girl in the bathroom and they quietly moved him to another school. In the recent assault, he abducted a girl. He uh, grabbed a girl pulled her into an empty classroom and assaulted her in the empty classroom. So now he's being charged with uh, abduction as well as sexual assault. But the thing is, they like they didn't even they apparently didn't even warn this school. Hey, this student raped a student in another school. So you need to keep an eye on him. So he's just allowed to roam free through the hallways and abduct girls at random and sexually assault him. So th- this goes beyond and this shows the slippery slope when you have people who support something as evil and demented as transgenderism, as gender fluidity, when you have people who support something that goes so far against nature as this, they're going to be morally bankrupt in other areas as well. They're going to they're going to sweep rape under the rug. They're going to sweep assault under the rug. They're going to lie. They're going to cheat. They're going to steal. They're they're not they're going to be untrustworthy because all they care about is themselves and their agenda. They'll, and I mean, some people like this, you could, I mean, I wouldn't put it past them to cover up murder. They would put, they would cover up anything. Someone who is so morally degenerate and so morally bankrupt that they would look at the idea that a teenage boy can think I'm going to be a girl today and that they would affirm that boy in that stance and let him go use the bathroom in the girl's bathroom when they're that demented, when they're that degenerate. Because, there is no level to which they would stoop, to which they wouldn't stoop. Exactly. And all because he's wearing a skirt. To our knowledge, he hasn't gotten any of the surgery or hasn't taken any of the hormones or anything. He just likes to wear a skirt. Yeah, and, and I think that's a misunderstanding and, on a lot, of, a lot of people's parts. I think a lot of people who really don't have a dog in the fight and they don't care, they just because most people, they just don't care anything about this stuff. They just want to make money and live a happy life. I think that's a lot of that's a big misunderstanding. They think, OK, well, you've got teenagers who have had surgeries. And they're now I mean, they the, now have yeah. female bodies, right. and that's what they think. I think that's what a lot of people think when they hear about the bathroom debate. They're just like, okay, well, these kids have already been they've already transitioned, so sure, go ahead and let them use the girls' bathroom. Hey, first off, assuming that means anything, no, getting surgery and mutilating yourself does not mean you are a girl. But again, they have accepted those terms at this point. But they don't. They're thinking a female body. They're right. thinking someone with a female body going into a female restroom. They're not thinking a boy who has not transitioned or hasn't taken any kind of hormone therapy or anything. He's just as he's just as masculine as he was before he decided to go on this demented phase he's in. They're they're not thinking of him going into a girl's restroom and pretending to be uh, pretend to be a, a girl. So look, you know, if, hey, if if some demented teenager is a mentally ill teenager wants to pretend like he is the opposite gender and he wants to you know this boy wants to go squat in the boys' restroom on a toilet and pretend like he's a girl, whatever. But he needs to do that in the boys' restroom. You know, don't exactly. just need to do that in the girls' restroom. But here, the reason why we're at this stage, here's the thing. Most people, they don't agree with this. If you sat down, I guarantee you, if you sat down with every single person in Loudoun County, every single voter, and you explained what this bill does, you, you just explained the facts to them, I guarantee you over 85, 90% of them would be opposed to it. Even in, in private, in, Even in liberal Loudoun County. 
But, well, not even in private. Like they wouldn't dare speak out against it because no, no, then they'd I, be called transphobes. No, no. I think most people genuinely have not taken the time to understand what this means. Again, I think most people, most of these Democrats, they think it's just a matter of someone who has transitioned being allowed to use the restroom of their body not the restroom of their choice, because they don't think about this stuff. They're focused on other things in life. They're focused on other political issues. But also there's the partisan divide. A lot of people, they will instinctively, and this is true for Republicans and Democrats, they will instinctively support anything that their political side supports. It doesn't matter if they would normally be against this or for it. They just, they're, because they're partisans, they don't want the evil Republicans to gain power. So they will support anything that the Democrats propose. But just real quick on this topic, there's six reactions people have. There's six different reactions people go through, stages that people go through when they're confronted with social or political revolution, which is what our country is going through right now. This is nothing short of a social revolution. The first thing they exhibit is confusion. They're, so let's say they're introduced to something, the idea of uh, gender fluidity. They've never heard that concept before. They don't, have, it, they don't have a frame of reference to even judge whether that's moral, whether it's immoral, right or wrong. They don't know what it is. They're first confronted with confusion. Okay, the second thing that they are confronted with once they're made to understand what it is, is amusement. They can, you know, they'll smile, they'll smirk, they'll laugh. It's like, <laughs> this is crazy. These, these people are, these people are silly. It's just amusement because they don't recognize it as a threat. Once they recognize it as somewhat of a threat, then they'll move from amusement to mockery. They'll make fun of these people. They'll make fun of their lunacy. You know, they'll, they'll crack jokes about them. And you see this with a lot of college students who kind of recognize that this could be a threat but they don't want to go too far. They just kind of make fun of it. Next, once they realize that, hey, this actually is a threat, then they'll go, then they'll opt for optical opposition. They want to have good optics. They want to be opposed to it, but they don't want to come across as hateful and bigoted. They don't want to be disliked by the powerful and the influential. They don't want the, the powers that be to look down on them and think they're the, on the same level as racist. So they'll offer some kind of optical opposition. They'll say things like, this is kind of where they're moving with this with this situation. They're like, okay, well, maybe this, and even that ABC interviewer asked the dad, do you think maybe they could amend this bill and make it a little bit better so they could protect students but still respect transgender rights? And this is this is optical opposition. Okay, let's, let's let transgenders use the bathroom of their choice, but let's try to, let's uh, implement renovations in the bathrooms to make the stalls more private. And that's what they did in Loudoun County. So they, they renovated the bathrooms for who knows how many, hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars to make the stalls more private. A completely unnecessary change and a waste of money, but that's exactly. part of the course. Well, next, people will move to massive resistance. That's massive political resistance. And then if they really get emboldened, they'll go on the counteroffensive and they'll launch counterattacks. Direct action. Against, yeah, direct action against these people politically, and they'll attack the position itself and to try to discredit the position. The problem with the right in America is most of this stuff gets enacted while people are still stuck on the confusion stage or at most the amusement stage. So they're introduced to an idea, and while they're confused about what it is, the left is already putting it into action. And when they see it going into action, at that point, they're amused. And before they can even move to the mockery stage, bam, it's law, and there's nothing they can do about it. And so this is why the right is at a massive, massive disadvantage in the culture war because so many people on the right are completely oblivious to what's going on. This dad, Scott Smith, in the interview, if you watch the full interview, he was he didn't really understand. He couldn't really articulate what the law said or did. All he knows is they passed, the governor passed this law, and now my daughter has been raped because of it. That's that's really the the essence of how he understood it. And he didn't even know about the law until his daughter until it happened to his daughter because he's got a plumbing business. 
He's focused on taking care of his family. He's focused on making money. He's focused on just being a good American citizen. He's not paying much attention to politics. And this is the way most people on the right are. They don't pay attention to this stuff until it's far too late. They don't pay attention until it affects their own family and it affects their own community. And, you know, stuff like this, this could have been nipped in the bud years ago. But until people on the right, more specifically the intellectuals on the right, move straight to counterattacks on these positions and they discredit the whole transgender movement entirely and say, no, people who are transgender are mentally ill. We do not need to give them a voice in society. We do not need to respect their rights or affirm them in their transgenderism until they move to counterattacks. This stuff is going to continue. And exactly. while the masses are still left in the confusion stage, I think what it came down to also is that a lot of you know Republicans, certainly in leadership, but also a lot of voters, they went along when they first saw the signs of this, and again in the initial confusion and mockery stages, they assumed that the craziness would make itself evident, and the silent majority, the sensible common folk, would come out and vote against it. Like this is 1968 mm-hmm. or 1980, which if the the difference being is yeah, I, I think as you said, a lot of people would be against it if they knew what it was. The problem is the media is so dishonest. They're going to run for it. They're going to cover it. Big tech, social media, the mainstream media, they are going to continue saying, oh, this is all about just, you know, ending oppression for these tiny oppressed minorities. And they're going to completely bury the story. The media, of course, is barely covering this story now. And they're going to run cover for the far left agenda because they agree with it. And that's how you get to the point where, again, last year, Elizabeth Warren gave a speech at the Democratic National Convention declaring that. There was an epidemic of black trans women being murdered mm-hmm. in unprecedented numbers in America, which is literally not true. That is non-existent. That is not happening. And even but, if it was true, we have laws on the books against murder. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Murder is kind of already illegal. But again, it's they want to keep creating new minority classes and going higher and higher up the minority pyramid for the smallest possible minority transgender in this case transgenders and as the whole the dave Chappelle kerfuffle with the netflix special proves at this point it, it's kind of a the left is now at a crossroads with having to choose between which minority do they <laughs> really want to prioritize we want to prioritize african americans or trannies we'll have to wait and see the jury is still out on that one well the republican party also bears a lot of blame for this because in the current and media environment the you can't expect uh, right-wing media even if they did their job they're so outgunned by mainstream leftist media mm-hmm. that supports the whole LGBTQIA agenda, that the only way for people to actually find out about this stuff is if Republican politicians make it a campaign issue, because that's the that's the only way that you can really force the media to focus on the right wing viewpoint, because if you get out and talk to Democrats, most Democrats, they don't know what conservatives believe about on issues. All they, they, they really know is that, oh, conservatives are against X, Y, and Z. They, they have a caricature of conservatives views on issues. But if a Republican politician you know, makes a stand on these issues and expresses his opinion on these issues, then the news media has to cover it because that politician is on the ballot and he could potentially get elected. And it's in the media's best interest to make sure that that politician loses. So they're going to have to cover it. And here's an example of Republican malpractice. When I was working in Massachusetts for Charlie Baker's reelection in 2018, the Senate race was also going on with Elizabeth Warren's and Jeff Deal was the Republican opposer. And in the debate, they had just in Massachusetts, they just passed a law that protected transgenders to be able to go into whatever bathroom they wanted. I didn't know the details of the law until the debate, and they asked them. Of course, they're Senate candidates. They don't have any say-so in the law, but they asked them their opinion on it, and Elizabeth Warren came out with a strong statement. I stand for this bill, and I stand against hate. And they asked Jeff Deal about it, and he tried, he waffled on his opposition. He's like, well, the problem with this bill is if I have a daughter and she goes into a bathroom and she gets sexually assaulted, and the guy comes out, if I confront this guy about it, I could be prosecuted. And when he said that, I thought, that, that can't be. That doesn't sound right. 
I looked up the law, and that's exactly what the law says. If In Massachusetts, of course, that law passed, but in Massachusetts, if your daughter is raped in the bathroom and she comes out and says, this man raped me, if you say anything to him or you do anything to him, you can be sentenced to prison. Three years in prison, by the way. And this is... This is what this is what passed. They put this on the ballot, by the way. They challenged it. They put it on the ballot and it passed by like three to one, by three to one margin. People, it was like 67, 68 percent of uh, Massachusetts voters voted for this bill. And the reason why it passed by that kind of margin is because you would have to be a legal scholar to understand the amendment. I was working with somebody on the campaign. They called me and they said, hey, I'm, I'm at the polling booth. right. I'm at the voting booth right now, and I don't understand this Amendment 3. I don't understand the wording of it. And they said, I, I voted yes, but they read it to me, and they were stumbling over their words because it's like three paragraphs long. It's in a bunch of legalese, and they were about to vote for it. And I, it took me a solid two minutes to explain to them what the amendment was, what it was going to do. They're like, oh, no, no, I don't want to support that. But you can imagine if that's how they thought, how many more hundreds of thousands or even millions of Massachusetts voters voted for it? Because they thought it said something else or they just left it blank and they let all the activists carry it through. But this is what happens in these situations. You have a bunch of legal scholars who write things in legalese that common people don't know what they mean. They use terms that people have never heard of. So they just zoom out and they vote and they forget about it and they go watch football. And then stuff like this happens. And then a dad can be prosecuted for standing up to his daughter's rapist. But every Republican in Massachusetts should have forgot about fiscal conservatism and only focused on this. And they should have only focused on this. To this day, until that law gets repealed, but it's it's partly the fault of the Republican Party. They're caring more about the short term victory rather than the long term victory. They're caring more about winning the the battle, at, you know, on November sixth or November second, rather than winning the long term war. So, for the main topic, as I hinted at in the intro, cancel culture, guys. It's it's such a fun phenomenon, isn't it? it is claimed countless lives, countless careers, countless legacies. People who have just been ruined by this. And again, more recently, it had been just a broader, wide-scale attack on multiple lower-level people, you know, business owners, people who spoke out against BLM, people who weren't really high-profile. It had been a while since we had seen a canceling or maybe like a Me Too-style targeting of a single individual of a prominent stature in the celebrity world or what have you. And in this case, we have just seen another one. Cancel culture is making a comeback as 2021 comes to a close. John Gruden is a coach, or now former head coach, of the, I gotta get used to this, Las Vegas Raiders. Again, I'm from Central California. The Oakland Raiders were a pretty big deal. Uh, even where I was from, lots of kids in my high school supported the Oakland Raiders. So, Jacob, fill us in what has happened to him in recent days. So, the revolution has uh, has come for John Gruden. This isn't surprising. I mean, John Gruden for two decades has been the face of, if you wanted to picture a, a Midwestern, Working class, blue collar type guy who went into the NFL, who in a, in a different life would have probably been like a factory manager or whatever. It would be John Gruden. But you can just imagine him chewing out a player, like getting right up in their face and just chewing him out like an angry drill sergeant. This is the kind of coach that he kind of projected as the image. I mean, he, can, he probably is kind of a nice guy in person, but uh, they usually uh, apparently are. apparently not over email, but at least in person. <laughs> but uh, so. The Wall Street Journal, so just for some backstory. So anyway, he coached, as you already know, I'm sure, he coached the Oakland Raiders from 1998 to 2002. He then went to the Tampa Tampa Bay Buccaneers where he won a Super Bowl in 2003, in the January 2003. That would have been the season in 2002. He was fired in 2009 after a couple of losing seasons. Then he went on to be a commentator for Monday Night Football. He worked for ESPN. He called the 2010 College Football National Championship. 
And then he got rehired with the Las Vegas Raiders in 2018 for a 10-year, $100 million contract. So he's been around forever. His, his brother, Jay Gruden, was also a coach. Just some backstory on these emails. The Washington Redskins, they allegedly had a lot of really toxic work culture where women were not really sexually assaulted, but were demeaned and uh, were hit on and stuff by their um, by their superiors, by their male superiors. So they've been pouring over hundreds of thousands of emails to try to find out what exactly happened. They fined the Washington football team for $10 million this past summer. And in that trove of emails was were a bunch of emails that John Gruden, in his communication with the Washington Redskins president at the time, Bruce Allen. And the Wall Street Journal broke this story on October 8th. And then the New York Times and John Gruden, he apologized, and then he coached last Sunday. And then the New York Times followed up on Monday, on October 11th, since the, apparently he wasn't going to get fired over the Wall Street Journal article. So they're like, OK, we got to finish this guy off. I got I got to say real quick, what is it with the Wall Street Journal? They're supposed to be like one of the few like decent center right publications, like one of the reliable major newspapers in the country. And yet every now and then they'll just suddenly get this bizarre fixation with these hit pieces, these witch hunts against conservative or celebrities who happen to have a slightly conservative bent, whether it's the YouTuber PewDiePie or whether it's John Gruden in this case. What is it? Are we it's, supposed well, to trust the Wall Street Journal it's or the, not? It's, a wall, it's the Wall Street Journal for a reason. Like it's, uh. They support Wall Street. They don't support America's culture. They don't support tradition. They, they support Wall Street. I guess it's New York Post or Bust at this point. So anyway, so on October 11th, the New York Times decided to try to finish him off. And uh, the initial story was kind of just to well, – we're fixing to get into it, but it was like it made him out to be a racist against black people. That right. did, That didn't get him fired. And then the <laughs> initial emails that the New York Times ran, it made him out to be a homophobe, and that forced him to resign. So it's funny because Shannon Sharp was going off on uh, on, on the situation. He's like, he didn't get fired. He didn't, wasn't forced to resign because he's anti-black. He was forced to resign because he's anti-gay. He was just going <laughs> off all upset about it. But uh, Again, that's just like in the Dave Chappelle special. You know, he literally said, uh, I got to censor it here, but he is in his special. He says, yo, in America, you can kill a black man, but you better not hurt a gay person's feelings. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the way it is. That's, that's what, there's, that's what these, uh, these black grievance culture elites are starting to realize. So some of the stuff that he ended, it ended up coming out in the New York Times that he had said in these emails, and keep in mind, th- these emails stretch from 2011 to 2018, and these, it's out of a trove of 650,000 emails. So it, when, you can, when you think about everything that you said over a seven-year period, if, every, if people, if these cancel culture uh, hall monitors were to go over every single thing that you wrote from 2011 to 2018, imagine what they could dig up on you. I mean, I mean on anybody. I mean, over the course of seven years, you can always point to something and accuse them of being insensitive and get them fired from their job. But, I mean, just to show how based John Gruden is, I mean, we <laughs> we would be remiss if we didn't go over some of this stuff. Some of this stuff is just absolutely golden. Like, this is, I mean, this is this is some good stuff right here. So, in addition to the, uh, the alleged racist remark he made, he also, he denounced the drafting of a gay player and the tolerance of players protesting during the play in the national anthem. So he told Bruce Allen that while he was, this is while he was working for ESPN on uh, for Monday Night Football, he said that NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell was a faggot and a clueless anti-football <laughs> pussy. He said that Goodell should not have pressured Jeff Fisher, and who was then the coach of the St. Louis Rams, to draft queers, a reference to Michael Sam, a gay player chosen by the team in 2014. This is actual locker room talk. 
Like this is not the stuff oh, that yeah. Trump was doing on a on a tarmac. Oh, this is like when a bunch of roided up athletes and their coaches are going to be talking about when a bunch of dudes in a locker room they're totally going to be talking about like the girls that they dated the other night, like stuff like that. Yeah, literally locker room talk. It's just kind of it's something that happens. If you could find you could find locker room talk like this on literally. Anybody oh, yeah. in the NFL, and they would all be canceled. Everybody would be gone. Oh, yeah, there would but, be nobody left. But when you think about it, he's not wrong that Roger Goodell is trying to sissify the NFL because when you think, you got to think about the culture that John Gruden made his marks in in the early 2000s, that decade. That was the decade that spawned comedies, comedies like 21, 22 Jump Street. Yes. That was the decade that produced, I mean, basically the meathead football player who goes in the locker room and talks crap with his with his football buddies and makes some of the most obscene jokes imaginable and then walks out of the locker room and is a perfect gentleman to his girlfriend. That was the image of the American football player and the American football coach. You talk some of the dirtiest trash you can possibly imagine in the locker room. You get it out of your system. That just doesn't fly in the culture of soy boys, of effeminate <laughs> little uh, skinny jean soy boys they are trying to trying to turn the NFL over over to and into the kind of guys that Gillette wants us to be yeah yeah, exactly so uh, Gruden also criticized Barack Obama during his re-election campaign in 2012 as well as then then Vice President Joe Biden whom Gruden called a quote nervous clueless pussy (laughs) (laughs) even more relevant today but he also wanted to see Eric Reed fired for kneeling with Colin Kaepernick and supporting Colin Kaepernick's kneeling. And just thing that these people don't understand, the NFL fans, they're with John Gruden on this stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, another thing he was accused of, he was criticizing women referees. He made a joke about the fact that they're introducing women referees. We don't want to see women referees. We don't want to see queers play football. We don't want to see players kneel during our <laughs> national anthem. We don't want to see any of this stuff. We don't want to see the NFL, America's pastime, sissified. We don't want any of these changes, but we don't have a voice because we don't have the billions. Like the NFL is a multi-billion dollar franchise run by the top one to five percent. What they say goes, there's nothing we can do about it. It's just like the, with the Washington Redskins, FedEx literally held a gun to the organization's head and said, you're going to change this name or we're pulling out. And what, what are you going to do? You're going to what are you going to pass around the hat and say, hey, we need five dollar donations to build a new stadium. No, you don't. You, Bend the knee, you do what they tell you to do if you want a football team. And it's not a democracy, so you can't vote them out either. Because that's where they want to go. They want to move to where corporate execs and CEOs, they have the same power as legislators. They have the same power as the president, as congressmen, and they can decide. They can shape culture. They can shape politics. And uh, somebody like Gruden, who's an old school NFL coach, he just he kind of gets in the way of that. And so bringing him down, I mean, I'm sure somebody whoever sh- shared these emails with the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times they obviously they saw Gruden as a threat that has continued because the guy what's interesting is since this happened, they've tried to get obviously they've tried to get negative comments from his former teammates and or from his former players, former coaches that worked with him because 70 percent of the NFL is black. So there you figure, OK, well, he made for they're trying to make it out that he made fun of a black man's appearance. So surely they can get after last year, they can get a whole bunch of black players and former players and former coaches to come out against him. That really hasn't been the case. Because, remember, this came out on Friday. This broke on Friday. He talked to the team about it. Not a word emitted from the lips of any of his players after this happened. Not a word. No one spoke to the press. No one tweeted about it. No one complained about it. He told the team about it. They went out and they played on Sunday, just like everything was normal. And this infuriated the press because they're watching their power slip out of their fingers. Mm-hmm. They're used to releasing a bombshell and immediately heads roll. Immediately, people come out and slam the person. 
Now, maybe at this time last year, if this had come out then, you would have seen players be a little, little bit more vocal. But for the most part, the only people that have really knocked Gruden have been former players. And even some of their comments don't have anything to do with what he wrote in his emails. It's just been criticizing his style of coaching. It's like they already had a bone to pick with Gruden because of his style of coaching or whatever. And so they're just using this as, as an excuse to air their football grievances. But as far as this stuff, it's funny. They asked the owner to comment on it, and he, he uh, snarkily told him, well, ask the NFL. They have all the answers. Uh, he did. He wasn't even interested in, in running Gruden through the mud. So I see that as kind of an encouraging sign. And even a lot of former players who uh, played on his team in recent years, one guy, he studies personality traits, like 16 different, he's a kind of a nerd. He said, yeah, Gruden's the kind of person who's impulsive, so I could see him writing something without thinking about it. And they asked him, well, you think he's racist or you think he's misogynistic? No, no, I don't think he's racist or misogynistic. And so it just kind of blows up their narrative when they can't get players to universally and coaches to universally dump on him like this. So it just shows that the, the media, they're seeing their power slowly slip out of their fingers and that's why they're going through convulsions right now because they're wanting to make this – what they're really wanting to do is they want to bring the NFL down or at least make it more woke. And they want to see this as like a domino effect and it's just not happening. Like uh, Gruden apparently, uh, he quietly resigned and he didn't you know, issue any kind of major apology for being white, didn't issue a major apology and say that he needs to take counseling and learn from this or anything. He just simply resigned said, I don't want to be a distraction and again, you know, the guy was probably faced with a choice. You either resign and you'll take a, you know, nice little severance package or you can be fired and you'll take a less nice severance package. <laughs> so I see this as kind of an encouraging sign that, that, you know, there is no pile on on Gruden. And at the end of the day, Gruden walked out uh, without really backtracking on any of this stuff. He didn't apologize. He didn't apologize for any of it. Any of the any of the uh, the, no. the queer comments no, called Roger right. Goodell a faggot. He, he <laughs> mentioned that his former boss at Tampa Bay, the vice president of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, could suck his dick. Like, <laughs> that's I think that's one of the reasons why he ended up being removed from the Ring of Honor with the Buccaneers, where he won the Super Bowl. Not because of anything else he said, but because he uh, he insulted the vice president there. But yeah, it's just just kind of funny because the the media they're they're seeing their power of cancel culture slowly slip out of their grasp. So in the from the Wall Street Journal piece. On July 21st, 2011, the National Football League and its players were working to resolve a lockout that threatened the upcoming season. That day, the league's owners voted to ratify a new collective bargaining agreement, but the players opted not to vote on it immediately, citing outstanding issues that the union was fighting to resolve. That same day, John Gruden sent an email about Damari Smith, the executive director of the NFL Players Association, to a team executive. Gruden's email described Smith with a racist trope common in anti-black imagery. Quote, Dumboris Smith has lips the size of Michelin tires. Quote, he wrote in the email reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. I'm sorry, you can't. I, you can't deny that that's kind of funny. I'm sorry. That's. I mean, especially when I, I go to like look at his Wikipedia page, and and the weird thing is when you on Wikipedia, there's this weird thing where you hover over a name that links to a Wikipedia page, and it pops up a little preview window, right? And usually it's a um. It's like a, a includes a picture if there's a picture at the head of the article, and this might be a formatting issue. This might be because I am using Safari, which I am aware is not like a cool kids browser, but it's weirdly incorrectly formatted. So when I hover over the picture of this, the, the link to this guy's name, Demory Smith, his Wikipedia article, 
it's zoomed in on the lower half of his face and showing his lips. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my god, I I can't unsee that now. I'm sorry. Oh so, my god. So anyway, uh, uh, Gruden was a broadcaster. Uh, I, I disavow. I disavow. So Gruden, <laughs> Gruden was a broadcaster for ESPN at the time. He sent the email to Bruce Allen, who was then the president of the franchise, now called the Washington Football Team. And it's funny they won't even like we know what the Redskins were called before they stopped being the Redskins. But the Wall Street Journal is so politically correct that they won't even say who was the president of the then Washington Redskins. Instead, they say the franchise now called the Washington football team. I mean, this is we've, we've moved post-insanity at this point, when even the Wall Street Journal is being this PC. In an interview, Gruden said he can't specifically recall writing that email, but apologized for using that language. Gruden said he had been angry at the time because of the lockout and didn't trust the direction the players led by Smith were going in the negotiations. He said he has in the past referred to people he believes to be lying as, quote, rubber lips. He said, I was upset. I used a horrible way of explaining it. Quote, I don't think he's dumb. I don't think he's a liar. I don't have a racial bone in my body, and I've proven that for 58 years, end quote. But here's what's interesting. In a statement to the Wall Street Journal, now he mentioned, Gruden mentioned that he reached out to Smith to try to explain and apologize. So the the story he's going with, that Gruden is going with, is that he refers to people who lie as rubber lips and that he called, he said this guy has lips like Michelin tires. And Tires are made of rubber, I believe. So he's arguing that I wasn't making fun of his physical appearance. I was simply using this, this expression that I have that if someone is lying, they've got rubber lips and he's got lips the size of Michelin tires. We don't have the full email spectrum, so we don't know what the response of Bruce Allen was to that. We don't, we, so we don't have the full context. And if there was a legitimate investigation into whether or not he was actually being racist, then we would have that full context. But he reached out to Smith to try to apologize. Smith would not return his calls, wouldn't get up with him. So you think, okay, well, Smith is just busy, couldn't get up with him. No, no, no. In a statement to the Wall Street Journal, Smith said Gruden's comments reflect the difficult reality black people continue to face as they advance in their careers. I'm sorry, in the NFL, of all things, especially? Yeah, so, so this is the difficult reality that black Americans face when they're trying to advance in their careers. <clears throat> this guy is the head of the NFL Players Association. There, there literally is nowhere else for him to go. He has reached the pinnacle of his career. He's as high as he can possibly get in, the, in that particular role. But uh, this is just the difficulty they face when they're trying to advance. Quote, this is not the first racist comment I've heard and probably will not be the last. This is a thick-skinned job for someone with dark skin, just like it always has been for many people who look like me and work in corporate America. You know, people are sometimes saying things behind your back that are racist, just like you see people talk and write about you using thinly-coated racist language. Racism like this comes from the fact that I'm at the same table as they are and they don't think someone who looks like me belongs. I'm sorry my family has to see something like this, but I would rather they know. I will not let it define me. Cry me a river. What's your What's your salary, by the way? What's this guy's uh, let, salary? Let's find out. So uh, let, let's find out. Can, can we acknowledge, by the way, again going back Net to that worth. quote? He referred to him as dumb Oris. Dumb Oris. Like dumb. That, you misspelled that, it. That's pretty. That is that's pretty funny. clever. That's funny. His, his, net, net worth. his net worth. His salary is three million. His net worth is ten million. Cry <laughs> me a river. <laughs> Oh my God! But see, only in America, right? Only in only in America, only in America. But see, here's the thing: this is this is not something. This isn't taken out of a vacuum. His mentality that he's this victim, this victimhood. You know, yeah, this is the reality that black people in America. He's, he's going to demand even day. more compensation as a result of this. He's going to demand even more money. That's what he's looking for. That's really what he's looking for. So, in the athletic, the beat reporter for the Las Vegas Raiders is Deshaun Reed. 
And it, his, you know, as you expect, when something like this happens, there's immediately a flurry of news article after news article after news article attacking the attacking the person who is basically being victimized by cancel culture, just trying to run him in the ground, you know, throw mud at him, pile on. No, absolutely no grace whatsoever. No, no mercy. So this guy, Sean Reed, he, he spends the first two paragraphs of this article in The Athletic that we're going to link to in the description going over the horrible history that black people have had to go through, as if we don't already know, as if we haven't heard 5,000 times already in our lifetime. I mean, if you're at least 15 years old in America, you've heard this at least once per month for every year of your life. But he's got to spend double, the first— yeah, double over the course of the last year. Yeah, 1619 he's, Project. We get it. But he's got to spend the first two paragraphs going over the 1619, summing up the 1619 Project— and then he writes, Raiders coach John Gruden became guilty of perpetuating some of the same racist ideologies that defined Jim Crow when he sent an email obtained by the Washington, by the Wall Street, saying the Washington Street Journal, by the Wall Street Journal, to former Washington football team president Bruce Allen in 2011. Quote, DeBorah Smith has lips the size of Michelin tires, end quote. He apologized and later told the athletics Vic, Vic Taffer that he refers to people who he feels are lying as rubber lips. He added that he went too far said, I had never had a blade of racism in me and had reached out to Smith to apologize directly, but hadn't heard back from him. That Gruden felt comfortable enough saying such a thing in an email makes it fair to question what else he said in forums that aren't electronically logged. But see, that's assuming that Gruden meant it racially, that he's making the assumption he's disbelieving Gruden's explanation, and he's just assuming that Gruden meant it racially. If Gruden is telling the truth and he didn't mean it racially, it wouldn't have mattered if Bruce Allen was black or white. If he's talking to someone who knows him, they would know that this is an expression he uses to refer to anyone, regardless of their race, if he thinks that they're lying. So this writer says that he doesn't think that he would have, uh, he would have, we don't know what else he would have said in forums that aren't electronically logged if he was this bold to write an email. Well, he did probably didn't think of it as being bold. He probably just, he didn't think of it at all because he that's wasn't. That's just how he talks. He's that's just how he it. talks. He's not referring to his actual physical lips. He's, it's an expression that he uses. But Reed goes on, and this is key. This is to understand why Smith thinks the way he does and why a lot of other black elites think the way they, they do. Think about – listen to this guy. He says, there, there's no benefit of the doubt to be given when a white person or someone of any race, for that matter, says something blatantly racist. Regardless of when it happened or the intent, it's a reflection of character and something that Gruden has to prove isn't indicative of his true nature within and outside the franchise he currently works for. Now, get this. The title of this article that Reed writes is Raiders coach John Gruden must prove his racist comment isn't indicative of his character, that he must prove it. So it's the burden of proof is on John Gruden. The burden of proof isn't on those making accusations. So there's no benefit of the doubt to be given when a white person or someone of any other race, for that matter, says something blatantly racist. And we know what he means by blatantly racist. He means blatantly anti-black. That's, that's what he's talking about. Says there's, so there's no benefit of the doubt given when a white person says something that is construed to be anti-black. So if I say, I don't know, let's say, um, let's say I, ask, uh, uh, I ask a black friend, hey, uh, would, you like to, uh, would you like to go eat at KFC? Someone says, oh, that's racist. You're being racist. I'm like, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Uh, like, no, I'm not. No. OK, prove it. Like, wait a minute. You're the one accusing me of being racist. You prove it. Like, I don't have to prove it. I'm simply asking if he wants to go get lunch at KFC. Guilty until proven see, innocent. Th right? This is the thing, because I'm white. Then according to this guy, then I would have to prove that what I said was not racist. So think about that. You go through life. Every little thing you say 
if someone else thinks if it's construed as insensitive, you then have to spend your you know, precious time and energy on this earth proving that you're not a racist. And it's the exact opposite of our legal tradition of innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent. And not to chase a rabbit here, not to get off on too far of a tangent, but people who reject America's white heritage and America's historical Anglo-Saxon traditions and America's historic founding in the 18th century, people who, who completely reject the English common law and the English cultural framework that this nation was founded on, they don't have any reason to accept the legal framework either. And this is why critical legal theory preceded critical race theory, because all of those laws, including the concept of innocent until proven guilty, it was created by white people, specifically white men for white men. When they created the concept of innocent until proven guilty, all they've got to say is, look, women weren't allowed to vote. Black people were slaves. So, you know, we didn't have uh, any other groups here. Uh, gays were being gay was was outlawed. So obviously the concept of innocent until proven guilty was created by white men for white men. And if you still believe in that, then you're upholding white supremacy. So let's completely get rid of the whole innocent until proven guilty white supremacist framework and let's create a new framework, one that takes into account the historical suffering of non-white men and that automatically assumes white men are guilty of racism and misogyny and homophobia and that if they're accused of such, the burden of proof is now on them to prove that they're not that. And this is this is the idea behind that. This is where they want to go with all of this stuff. And that is how you deconstruct an entire nation. When you tear down the very idea of the foundation of the country and you question the identity of those who made it, or rather you criticize the identity of those who made it as if to say, oh, the founding fathers had slaves. Everything else they believed is irrelevant because that's the closest thing we have to a unifying force in America since it's kind of decisively stopped being a decisively Christian nation. There was the idea of this civil religion in the United States around the founding fathers, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, the Constitution, all these things. When you bring that into question, one thing that people could agree on across religious lines, then there is nothing left. There is nothing left to unify us as a country with a clear national identity. That is the very core, the essence of their efforts to deconstruct the United States of America as we once knew it, as we knew it for over 200 years. That is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Be sure to tune in next week for episode number 42. And until then, be sure to follow all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The list of websites and podcasts the full list of social media websites and platforms where we are available at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you are feeling ever so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.